Well, good morning and welcome to Power here at Twin Lakes Church. My name is Renee, one of the pastors here at the TLC. Welcome also to everybody joining us over in the venue service, everybody on Facebook Live. Here's a news update for you. Article in the San Jose Mercury News headline, Adults Brawl Mars Miami T-Ball Game. Nearly, nearly two dozen adults stormed a t-ball field and began brawling over an umpire's call as the four- and five-year-old players watched. Two coaches were suspended, and police are considering arrests. A video taken during the, notice the name of the league, Miami Friends Baseball Association. T-ball game Tuesday shows at least 20 men charging the field, throwing wild punches and tackling one another. I love the next line of the story. No children participated in the fight. Yeah, they knew better. Doesn't it seem like this sort of thing is happening more and more often these days? They say we're living in the age of outrage. Everybody's getting offended. Everybody's angry all the time, kind of walking around spoiling for a fight. But let me ask you, are you easily provoked? Or maybe I should say, what tends to push your buttons? What tends to provoke you more when a, a news headline reveals the latest outrage? When your power goes out? When a family member is getting under your skin? When some anonymous person you don't even know, maybe some blogger or some driver on the road does something that drives you crazy? When somebody insults a group that you consider yourself to be a part of in some way. When, when a neighbor wants to pick a fight. Well, today, David really experiences every one of those things in the story that we're going to look at from the pages of the Bible. And his response in the end, ultimately, is such a great role model for you and me. Grab your message notes. Chasing David is the name of our series on the life of King David in the Bible. We wrote a book about this called Chasing David. You can pick that up in the lobby. Now, uh, we're several weeks into this series, and we've covered a lot of ground in David's life. So I wanted to do a recap of David's story so far. And I was trying to think of kind of a fun and memorable way to do this. So here comes a summary of the stages of David's life so far as the four stages of the career of Leonardo DiCaprio. Because first, you have Titanic-era DiCaprio as the fresh, young face, the shepherd boy who with a sling and five stones defeats the giant Goliath. But then, after David kills Goliath and gets popular, King Saul gets jealous and wants him dead. And David has to flee to the wilderness. That would be the Revenant-era DiCaprio. For years, David lives out in caves and holes in the ground and flees King Saul, but he himself will not lay a hand on Saul. When he has a chance to kill him, he won't. He consistently has mercy on Saul because he doesn't want to make it look like he stole the throne by blood. He, he wants to be sure this is God's doing. And then indeed he gets to be king, and that's the next phase of his life, finally comfortable in his palace. Maybe that's middle-aged DiCaprio, and maybe a little bit too full of himself. Uh, David schemes to sleep with a woman, get rid of her husband, kill him. And after the prophet Nathan confronts him, David repents, and Nathan says, God does forgive you, but 
there will be terrible consequences. And that brings us to the next phase, DiCaprio as an aged J. Edgar Hoover, David in his 60s. The consequences have aged him. David emotionally withdraws into a shell of shame as he realizes how he has destroyed so many lives. You know, sometimes I see people so burdened by regret that they can barely function anymore in their lives. And I see David that way for about the next dozen years or so. He just seems to wander the palace, a ghost in a shell. And as our story opens, David seems to have lost all ability to lead his kingdom, to lead his family. In fact, speaking of just one of his children, the Bible says, now his father, David, had never disciplined him at any time, not even by asking, why are you doing that? And this apparently is a pattern, and this leads predictably to chaos. Many of his children are just criminally self-indulgent, and it reaches the lowest point when one of his sons, named Amnon, rapes his own half-sister named Tamar. And what did David do about it? It says, when King David heard what had happened, he was very angry, but that's it. No legal charges. No prosecution. And the king in those days was the Supreme Court. It was his job to judge or assign judges to judge. But David does none of that. Judging criminals was his job. But this man of action has become a man of inaction. The nation's moral leader is afraid to make moral judgments. Maybe because of his own guilt, David is shocked seemingly by his own immorality into inaction. You know, guilt works great as a short-term motivator, right? But if you keep dwelling on it after God has forgiven you, guilt can be very self-destructive. David, in this story, is feeling that way, and he's apparently benching himself, taking himself out of the game, and that is so bad for the country. Well, another one of his sons, Absalom, takes in his sister Tamar, the victim, and takes care of her the rest of her life. And after waiting two years for David to pursue justice on her behalf, Absalom decides, if my father won't act, I will. And he invites his brother Amnon, the rapist, to a party where he kills him. To make a long story short, after several more years of inaction from David, Absalom decides, I'm going to step into the gap and I'm going to replace my ineffective father as king. And he's got a leg up on this. Absalom's already super popular. It says, now Absalom was praised as the most handsome man in all of Israel. He was flawless from head to foot. In fact, kind of a funny detail, he cut his hair only once a year and then only because it was so heavy. He's a rock star, right? So if I'm casting Absalom, I'm thinking early Zeppelin-era Robert Plant, right? I mean, <laughs> self-confidence was not a problem for this guy. But Absalom had a soft side. Look at this. He had three sons and one daughter. His daughter's name was what? Tamar. And she was very beautiful. He names his own daughter after the sister who had been raped, also named Tamar. So every time he says his daughter's name, it is a reminder of that injustice 
until finally he hatches a scheme to take over. He got up early every morning and went out to the gate of the city. Now, in those days, the gate of the city was actually not just a doorway. It was a big complex with multiple rooms. All Israelite cities were designed the same way. The gate house was the courthouse. It's where people brought their cases for the king or judges he appointed to hear. When people brought a case to the king for judgment, Absalom would ask, where in Israel are you from? It's a great way to start a conversation, right? And they would tell him their tribe. And then Absalom would say, you've got a really strong case here. It's too bad the king is nobody here to hear it. I wish I were the judge. And then everyone could bring their cases to me for judgment, and I would bring them justice. Like no one's getting from David right now. When the people tried to bow before him, Absalom wouldn't let them. Instead, he took them by the hand and he kissed them like, I'm just one of you, brother. And Absalom did this with everybody who came to the king for judgment. And so he stole the hearts of all the people of Israel. And the Bible says he does this for four years. And then he's very clever, very manipulative. The Bible says he hires people, including professional trumpeters, to go into every town and village And on a signal, at a certain time, on the exact same day, they're all to blow a fanfare on their trumpets and proclaim, Headline news! Absalom has just been crowned king in Hebron. Now, that was not true. But when people hear this news, they believe it. Absalom does this deliberately to provoke a reaction after four years of grooming the people. It's just like somebody posting on social media today to get some kind of a response from the crowd, right? And so these people start hearing this news and they believe it and they start cheering, oh, yay! Finally an effective king again. Long live Absalom. We love that guy. He's got great long hair and he's always at the courthouse. And leading this parade of popular acclaim, Absalom heads to Jerusalem for a showdown with dad. Well, a messenger soon arrived in Jerusalem, just sprinting there ahead of this parade to tell David, all of Israel has joined Absalom in a conspiracy against you. Then we must flee at once or it'll be too late, David urged his men. And the way I read it, after years, depending on the chronology, We're not sure, but it was between 11 to 16 years that all this inaction from David. You you don't see David leaving the palace uh, after a couple of weeks after Bathsheba uh, and that whole incident. He does go to one battle, but after that, you just see him passive for year after year after year. And it seems to me like in this instant, you see David snap back into action. action. He snaps back into mental and and emotional and spiritual focus because he realizes, I need to lead here or people will die. And he says, hurry, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. You see, he knew if I try and stay here and defend the city, if Absalom takes it, he will probably assume that everybody here sided with me and put everybody in the city to to death. That was typical in those days. So David abandons the throne to save the city. Once again, a fugitive at about 61 years of age. 
Now, I really want you to be able to picture this. The Bible says he traveled on this road out of Jerusalem. His palace would have been up on this ridge to your right. And then he travels through that road at the bottom of the Kidron Valley. The Bible names it very specifically. And then he goes up and over the ancient road that goes over the Mount of Olives, which, of course, is where Jesus also prayed many, many years later. And it's as if... On his way out of town, David is transformed with every step back into David. The David. The Bible describes him dispatching spies and sending orders along the way, meeting allies and giving them commissions. He plants a spy in Absalom's inner circle. He organizes an underground network of priests who are going to be sort of his informants. He sets up an army and a strategy And this is also the day, the Bible says, when he wrote Psalm 3. The subtitle calls it a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. One verse I want to show you here. I lay down and slept, and I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Man, it's like David is back. Finally, the David who fought Goliath is back. The David who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd is back. The David who had the moral authority to spare Saul's life is back. And David says something so wise. He said, if the Lord sees fit, he will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again in the city of Jerusalem. But if he is through with me, then let him do what seems best to him. This is so powerful. David seems to be admitting this bad thing, part of it is my own fault. Now, I'm going to do what I can to save the kingdom, to preserve lives, to put down this rebellion. But God, if you're through with me, then I'm going to totally accept it. I am not holding desperately on to anything. My life is totally 100% in your hands, God. And then what happens next has always been one of my absolute favorite stories from David's life, even though it's, it's, it's very obscure, but, but it's so good. This is all the lead-up to this story. As King David came to Pahurim, that's a town just over the hill, a man came out of the village cursing them. It was Shemai, son of Gera, from the same clan as Saul's family. And he threw stones at the king and the king's officers and all the mighty warriors who surrounded him. Get out of here, you murderer! You scoundrel! He shouted at David, the Lord is paying you back! Can can you imagine him? He's scampering along this ravine and he's yelling at David and his men as they're walking, trudging out of the city in disgrace. The Lord is paying you back for all the bloodshed in Saul's clan. You stole his throne and now the Lord has given it to your own son, Absalom. At last, you'll taste some of your own medicine. You're a murderer. Man, even telling this guy's story irritates me about this guy. He's like fingernails on chalkboard incarnate, right? He's human tear gas. So irritating. So if I'm casting this guy, it's Gilbert Gottfried. Remember him? (laughs) Get out, you scoundrel! Now, what about the crimes Shemai accused David of? These specific crimes. Did David steal Saul's throne? 
No. Did David shed blood to get Saul's crown? No. In fact, just the opposite. He spared Saul's life twice. So ironically, though he is guilty of bloodshed in the case of Uriah and the other men who lost their lives that day, he's not guilty of these specific crimes, so how's he going to respond? Well, David's assistant, Abishai, is walking along with David. He says, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Abishai, son of Zeruiah, demanded. He and his brother Joab, these guys, they're a piece of work. Their solution to every problem is, let's just kill him. Let me go over and cut off his head, he says. And if I'm casting him, he's Rain Wilson as Dwight Schrute from The Office. I'm skilled with several weapons I have with me. Let me just kill him. I am assistant king. David says, first, you're not assistant king. You're assistant to the king. And second, no, the king says. Who asked your opinion, you sons of Zeruiah? If the Lord has told him to curse me, who are you to stop him? And they did, David said to Abishai and to all his servants, my own son is trying to kill me. Doesn't this relative of Saul have even more reason to do so? It's not a fascinating answer. My own son wants me dead. How can I blame this guy? He's related to Saul. You know, like, like the other day he was a nobleman. Now he's a nobody. I totally get where he's coming from. Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to do it. And perhaps the Lord will see that I'm being wronged and will bless me because of these curses today. He seems to be saying, you know what, maybe, maybe I deserve it. The Lord is telling him to do it. I need to learn a lesson. Maybe I totally don't deserve it. I'll earn a blessing. But I choose to believe God's behind this. Fascinating. I love David's response here. Now, there's an unexpected twist, in fact, a couple of twists to this story that happen a few chapters later, and I'm going to show you those in just a few minutes. But first, let's press pause and look at four things here. When one of those extra grace-required people tries to get under your skin, do you allow yourself to be provoked? Do you, do you give back, right, as you're getting? Do you, do you yell at them? Do you boil over? Does it raise your blood pressure? Do you let it ruin your day and maybe your whole week? I've allowed people to affect me in all those ways when they try to provoke me. But what I need to learn is to handle it the way David handles it here. Despite severe insult and injury, David has learned to be four things. And I really think that these things could change your life. And I believe that if more of us Christians responded in these ways to the many ways we are being provoked these days, our witness would be better to the world and our whole culture would be better. These are very important. David is four things in this story. Number one, and I'm going to focus most of my time on this, he is unoffendable. I love that word, unoffendable. I'm reading this book, Unoffendable, by Brant Hansen, came out a few months ago. The subtitle is How Just One Change Can Make All of Life Better. Bill Finlayson, who is a man in our Chasing David small group that meets up at Mount Hermon on Wednesdays, gave this to me a couple of weeks ago. It's fascinating. And Bill said it's changed his life because years ago, Bill, Bill's a surfer, and years ago he gave up surfing. He said, because I would get so provoked by all the knuckleheads out there on the waves, 
He said, a few years ago, I found myself literally getting into a fight, circling a guy with clenched fists on the beach after we'd got into it on the waves. And he said, I thought to myself, I'm a Christian. What am I doing? And he actually quit surfing because he said, there's too many people pushing my buttons out there. But he said, now I realize that's always going to happen, but I can choose to be unoffendable. I can choose to change the way I respond to provocation. And he said, I love this book because now I can surf again. As the author writes, giving up your right to stay offended can be one of the most freeing, simplifying, relaxing, refreshing, stress-relieving, encouraging things you can do. And this is such an important word for our culture right now. I was reading a recent article on the Psychology Today website. How can we become less vulnerable to feeling slighted? It's about how we as a culture uh, are now encouraging people to feel slighted. What's being modeled for us is that the worst thing someone can do to you is disrespect you. And when they disrespect you, you just jump all over them. But the author of this article, Dr. Steve Taylor, writes about how psychologically unhealthy that actually is. Let me read you just a couple of paragraphs. He says, we all feel slighted when we're not given the respect that we feel we deserve. Maybe somebody forgets your birthday or doesn't return your phone calls. Maybe a person pushed in front of you in line. Psychologists call slights like this narcissistic injuries because they bruise our egos. But before you react to a slight, think about the consequences. We can replay the situation over and over again, and this could lead to sliding the person back. She didn't invite me to her party, so I'm not sending her a birthday card. And if the person reacts to your resentment, it could end up in a full-scale feud. A good friendship could dissolve. A, a close family could needlessly fall apart even more dangerously, especially with young men. Slights can trigger a violent reaction. Criminologists have noted that many acts of violence stem from a sense of slight. The psychologists Martin Daly and Margot Wilson estimated that two-thirds of all murders, murders, were the result of men feeling that they'd been disrespected. Man, it's up to us to start changing that culture. You and I can choose to be unoffendable. How do I do that? Well, there's a couple of components David shows here. First, David shows thick skin, quite literally. Look at verse 13. So David and his men continued down the road, and Shemai kept pace with them on a nearby hillside, cursing and throwing stones and dirt at David the whole way. David had to literally be thick-skinned. But right now, we seem to be living in a nation of very thin-skinned people. As I said in the intro, everybody seems to be looking for a way to be outraged and offended and disrespected. You know what the Bible says about that? Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook an insult. Overlook an insult. It is a man's glory to overlook. And it is glorious. It is to your glory to be the bigger person. General George Patton once wrote a book about principles he lived by. And whatever you think of Patton, there are some great lines in there. Like, 
Never fight a battle where you don't gain anything by winning. David had a much bigger battle to fight. He had to worry about Absalom. He couldn't concern himself right then with Shemai. You know, I wish Christians, we Christians, always lived by this line. Let me just give you one example that is sure to come up in just a few weeks. What? You know what happened to me this morning? The, the, the coffee shop where I order my coffee, they are now saying happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. I am so offended at that, I'm going to take this instantly to DEFCON level one. And instead of maybe acting Christ-like so people might be actually intrigued about a relationship with Jesus, I'm going to go to war over their holiday greeting. I'm going to blog about this. I'm going to post about this. I'm going to organize a boycott. Uh, what would I really gain if I won that battle? If I force someone else's employees to always say, Merry Christmas, what would I gain and what would I lose? Always ask, I might win this battle, but by winning the battle, might I lose the bigger war? Like in our case, to win people's hearts for Jesus. Is this really the best way to be an ambassador for the kingdom? Now, being unoffendable doesn't mean that you demand that others be unoffendable too. I don't, I don't want you to apply this like that, like this. I'm just going to insult you because Renee said you should be unoffendable. That's not how to apply this message. I still do my best not to offend anybody unnecessarily. And if they tell me that some word I'm using or something to address them offends them, I'm going to do my best not to offend them. Meanwhile, making it my goal to be personally unoffendable by anything people say to me. David shows thick skin, and David shows a lot of self-restraint, doesn't he? Like the Bible says, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. We're living in a culture that does not believe this anymore. But have you learned the truth of this proverb? Somebody said, post to social media when you're angry and you'll make the best post you'll ever regret. <laughs> David shows thick skin and self-restraint. He's unoffendable. And I'm going to go through the next three very quickly. Next, David is understanding. Remarkably understanding. He says, of course Shemai's cursing me. He's related to Saul. I get it. My own son's trying to kill me. Doesn't this, doesn't this guy have even more reason? David sees the story behind the scene. Now, maybe you're thinking, but David knew the story. I won't always know the backstory. How can I apply this? Well, you can be sure of one thing. There's always a story behind that. That's a phrase to repeat to yourself. There's a story behind that. That person who cut you off on the road, that rude clerk, the angry email. Maybe they just got bad news from the doctor. Maybe they had a bad day at work around here. I always think they're probably just stressed about trying to make ends meet here. There's always a story behind it, as there was for Shemai. He was a relative of Saul. Third, David is untroubled by Shemai's cursing, clearly. How? Remember, he says, let him curse. Maybe I'll learn a lesson. Maybe I'll earn a blessing. Either way, David trusts that God will use this 
mess. In fact, say that phrase in yellow out loud with me. God will use this mess. Say it again. God will use this mess. That phrase is such a key to peace. When somebody's mistreating you or or your life is troubled in some other way, did you know that you don't have to figure out why is this happening to me? You just have to think God's going to use this mess. Maybe this will grow my character. Maybe some blessing will come out of this. And then finally, David is unresentful even against Shemai. And here comes that plot twist. To escape Absalom, David and his people have to flee across the Jordan River, out of town, out of the country. Now, this is a major psychological blow because the Israelites crossed that river to get into the promised land. David's going backwards. And I go into way more detail in the book, but eventually Absalom's forces are defeated at great tragic cost. Absalom himself is killed. And David returns to Jerusalem, triumphant, but grieving. And look at the very first person to welcome him back. 2 Samuel 19, starting in verse 16. Shemai, son of Gerah, the man from Baharim and Benjamin, he hurried across with the men of Judah to welcome King David. Watch this. A thousand other men from the tribe of Benjamin were with him. He brought with him a thousand guys to help David move back who were all from Saul's clan. And they crossed the shallows of the Jordan to bring the king's household across the river, helping him in every way they could. And as the king himself was about to cross the river, Shemai fell down before him. My lord, the king, please forgive me, he pleaded. Forget the terrible thing your servant did when you left Jerusalem. May the lord put it out of his mind. I know how much I have sinned, and that's why I've come here today, the very first person in all Israel to greet my lord, the king. And you'll love this, because look who is still at David's side. Then Abishai, son of Zeruiah, said, Shemai should die because he cursed the Lord's anointed king. Like, can I I kill him now? I've been very patient. We won the war. Could this be like my bonus, David? David says, who asked your opinion, you sons of Zeruiah? Why have you become my adversary today? This is not a day for execution for today. I am once again the king of Israel. War is over. Enough killing. I declare amnesty. And then turning to Shemai, David vowed, vowed, your life will be spared. How do you respond when people tell you that they're sorry? There's a great verse from Proverbs, Proverbs 14.9. Fools mock at making amends for sin. And that's what Abishai does. He mocks Shemai trying to make amends here. He's like, what a joke. But goodwill is found among the upright. And that's what David does. He shows goodwill. Now, remember what we learned several weeks ago. Grace is not gullibility. Forgiveness does not mean you have to trust that person. 
Years later, as he's on his deathbed, David tells his son Solomon, the next king, he says, keep an eye on this Shemai guy, because I suspect he might be a ticking time bomb. And after David dies, Solomon calls Shemai to the palace, and he says, let me be honest with you. I know Dad forgave you, but I don't 100% trust you, so here's the deal. You need to stay in the Jerusalem vicinity where we can keep an eye on you. And if you do, you'll live to a ripe old age. But if you go without my leave, I will assume that you'll be up to no good, and that's going to be your death sentence. Ball's in your court. And Shemai agrees. It says they actually make a legally binding pact. Well, three years later, Shemai goes off to a Philistine city, Gath, the Philistine capital. And he has an excuse, but Solomon says, I, we specifically agreed that you would not do that, and you're going to the capital city of our arch enemies. And he reaps the consequences from Solomon. But there's an overarching principle here. David did forgive him and then put up healthy boundaries. You see, being unresentful does not mean you just check out a reality. David is unoffendable, not unintelligent. He's understanding, not undiscerning. He's unworried, not unconcerned. He's unresentful, but not unwise. He is still careful and deliberate and savvy. Now, you might be thinking, but Renee, why, why should I, why, why should any Christian be unoffendable and, and, and all these other things? Shouldn't a lot of things anger us? Shouldn't injustice against the poor anger me? Shouldn't I be passionate about helping the needy? Shouldn't disrespect against whole classes of people make me passionate? Are you, Renee, are you saying I should just be passive? Did I say anything about passive? No, of course we should not be passive about injustice. We should be passionate about injustice. Uh, for example, Kind of our, our, our highlighted uh, opportunity this weekend is the Embrace Grace baby shower. As you heard Mark talk about, these are, these are pregnant women in emergency situations. And many of them, usually most of these lovely, wonderful women, are coming out of abusive situations, often gang-related or drug-related situations. Some of them have been homeless. And most of these women who I've had the wonderful pleasure of meeting over the last several years that Embrace Grace has been going on, many of these women have been disrespected by men their entire lives. And now they're expecting a baby, and they have no support, they don't know what to do, and what we do is a Bible study, and life skills are being taught, and then we lavish them with new, beautiful things in a baby shower. It's a way to say, we respect you, we're on your side. And many, many of these women end up becoming a part of the community and followers of Jesus here at Twin Lakes Church. Yes, be passionate and engaged when other, others are disrespected and, and so on. But be careful when it comes to yourself personally, when you are insulted, when you are you know, other people attempt to provoke you to push your buttons, be unoffendable. 
You say, I still don't get it. Well, our role model in this is Jesus, right? Talk about an advocate for the poor, a hero to the needy, somebody who came alongside whole classes of people who were disrespected. But when he was cursed, when he was mocked, when he was belittled, when he was hurt, the Bible says, when they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And what's more, he himself bore our sins on the cross, and by his wounds, we are healed. And that's where you and I get the power to be unoffendable, to forgive, to be unresentful, when we realize we've been forgiven. That's where this, that the power comes from. Like David himself discovered when he wrote in Psalm 103, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. You know, that has to be one of the reasons that David was able to forgive Shemai. At this point in his life, he knew just how much he had been forgiven of. And that's the bottom line. When I believe God has forgiven me, and God has plans for me, then I can forgive and move on. And this is where David goes. Let me close with this. All of us have Shemais in our lives, extra grace required people, a boss, a child, a spouse, a relative, a neighbor, somebody in the parking lot in about 10 minutes, and maybe, maybe there's an area of your own life where you feel like you are Shemai approaching the king saying, I know I've sinned, please forgive me. And we have it on the authority of Scripture that the judge and king of the earth, the son of David, Jesus, looks at you and says, I forgive you. Now stop benching yourself and get back in the game. So let's pray to that forgiving God right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, help us not to feel slighted all the time. Help us to better reflect your character, Lord, when they hurl insults at us to be unoffendable, to be un understanding, to be unworried, to be unresentful. Now, with our heads still bowed, I know that in a crowd this big, there's got to be some of us who've done something in our lives that we're ashamed of, and maybe you're coming to God like Shemai at the end of the story saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and you're a little worried about the response. Well, the Bible says that because Jesus paid the penalty for us, he is able and he is willing to forgive all who will just come to him. So come to him now. And maybe for the first time, maybe for the hundredth time, pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to follow you as my Lord and as my Savior, as a first-time salvation prayer or, or even as a recommitment. I, I, I want to learn to walk in my forgiveness, to walk in the grace you lavish on me. Thank you, God, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.